Well, good morning to you all. Always good to see you all here. Today we're going to be uh, continuing on. This is the uh, book of Genesis. We're in chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 8. And we're going to read to the end of the chapter. So when you find Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, would you please stand for reading God's word? Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for your word, and Lord, for gathering us here this morning. We ask now for your help, uh, Father, in considering uh, this passage. I ask that you enable me to speak, present uh, the message here just as you would have it done. Please grant clarity. Please grant accuracy, Lord. We, we want to rightly understand uh, these things and how they are relevant, how they are applicable to us so many thousands of years later. And Lord, may we see the glory of Christ uh, here, though in this particular passage somewhat veiled, uh, yet present nevertheless. And with the light of uh, revelation that you have given in the New Testament, Father, uh, Lord, open these things up to us uh, that we may clearly see uh, your work of redemption for your people. 
that has been at work throughout the ages now. Lord, let it all be for your glory and honor, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> amen. A um, little bit of a... Um, well, just a few comments here and a and, uh, little bit of recap. Um, I don't know, you know, this is one of those, one of those we're, we're taking on a lot here, so I'm just trying to think. This may be one of those times where when we, when we run out of t- time, we just stop, and then we, we pick it up next week. We'll, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But let me, um, let me just kind of give you a, a summation sentence here and then, and then a few, few statements to just kind of help us uh, with context and recap a little bit. Um, but here it is. It's kind of the main point in all this. There are consequences for rebellion against God, and the only remedy is Jesus. Now, in the discipline of biblical theology, what, what is called biblical theology, um, and that phrase, by the way, does get used in, in a couple of different ways, but, but in terms of a discipline, like an area of study, in biblical theology, you come to a passage and you basically just deal with it as it is, where it is, in, in, uh, in the course of history, in the course of God's redemptive um, operation. And so I try to do that every time. But, you know, at least that's where we start. And then we move from there, hopefully, to, uh, to showing how these things are fulfilled in, in Jesus. And there, of course, when you do that, you know, you're doing a study in Genesis, and if you're going to see how these things are fulfilled in Jesus, at that point we've got we to gotta take in uh, some other passages you know, in the New Testament to show us how these things are, are done. So, so just strictly speaking from uh, the perspective of biblical theology, you might have to say, all right, okay, there's no mention of Jesus here, um, but there is mention of a remedy of a seed who will crush the head of the serpent who has deceived Eve right so um, we just want to want to be want to be clear that that is clear here God is clearly promising um, hope a, a remedy that that uh, is grounds for hope and there's a there's a contrast here bit of a contrast, if you go back to, um, well, let's, let's first go back to 225. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, that, of course, is before they sinned. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, God created man, then God creates man a helper uh, in Eve, his wife. She, she would be called by Adam, Eve. But... Um, they were, verse 25 says, both naked and were not ashamed. Now, people read that and they look at that and think, that's kind of an odd, you know, what's, that's kind of an odd thing to say. What's that doing in the Bible and that kind of thing? But I, I think the, um, the, the primary point there is that there, was, there were no barriers, there, were no, there was no reason for guilt or shame. Because at this point, they, they had no sin. They had not yet rebelled. And so, again, the, the idea is there was perfect harmony. 
no reason for shame. And, and here um, in, in Genesis 2 and 3, the term shame is used. And one of the things I'm going to probably be trying to point out is that um, I think that's actually, actually a result. Shame is the result of guilt. Guilt. So, so in other words, you could say behind this, what we're clearly seeing is that um, in 225, there's no guilt. They're not guilty of anything. But when you move from that into, um, into the fall in chapter 3, there is ob- objective guilt. In other words, they are truly guilty would be another way to say it. Because sometimes we use the term guilt um, two different ways, subjectively and objectively. So we want to, I just want to establish that both are true here. In other words, the reason you have subjective guilt, and what I mean by that is you have guilty feelings. You know, sometimes you just feel guilty. <laughs> the reason for that is is because you have objective guilt. In other words, there is actually guilt there is actually offense against God that has taken place, okay? So we are actually guilty of offending God. So in 225, that does not yet exist. So you have the man and woman, the man and his wife, both naked and were not ashamed. That is, there was no guilt and therefore there was no shame. But then they sin, and we discussed that two weeks ago. Then they they sinned, and so you get to verse 7, and it said in chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then you see in verse 10, uh, which we'll come back to, Lord willing, in a little bit, but... Um, when, when God calls out Adam, Adam says in verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So there you see he's, he's ashamed and he's ashamed because of guilt. So he's ashamed before his wife and he's ashamed before God. And so you have two, two things that have now entered into the human experience along with sin as a result of sin. Um, and that is shame and fear. He, he's, he's, he, they are ashamed in the presence of each other and also ashamed in the presence of God. And that, of course, uh, results in them being afraid of God. Right? So verse 7, after they sinned, the eyes of both were open. Um, that's metaphoric. I mean, in other words, it's not meaning... They were blind up to that point, and all of a sudden they could see because you might, you look at the language there and you might say, okay, the, the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. It doesn't go on to talk about something they saw physically. It talks about knowledge that they have now gained. So when it says their eyes were opened, it's, it's using that as a metaphor for the understanding. In other words, now they understand and now they knew that they were naked. So um, there is now, because of their um, disobedience against God, their, 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 and, and this is what we're going to try to unpack today, because of their sin, they, they now have 
objective guilt. That is, they have committed an offense against God. And because of their objective guilt, they have subjective guilt. That is, they have feelings of guilt. They feel guilty, and hence the shame. They're, they're ashamed. So, again, a couple of reflections, or a few reflections here on the fall that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, um, and how that, how that played out. Uh, and I'm not going to go back and read the, the narrative there, but, but you remember the story. Uh, the serpent comes and deceives Eve, and Eve eats of the, uh, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God had forbidden them to eat, and also gives some to Adam, and he eats. So, in doing these things... Um, and just looking at it from the perspective of each one, the snake, the serpent, subverts God's creation order by, first of all, exalting himself above man. Uh, he shouldn't be um, really coming and telling them to do anything or making any suggestions. They, they, God has given them dominion over all of the cattle, all of the, all of the rest of creation. So, so what you're seeing here is things are being turned upside down. So the snake subverts God's creation order by exalting himself above man. And by, by that I mean man, male and female, Adam and Eve. And by approaching the woman rather than Adam. By approaching Eve rather than Adam. Because, again, and this is what we talked about a couple of weeks ago as part of the creative order. Um, God has set Adam as head and created Eve to be Adam's helper. So she's in a submissive role to her husband Adam. And the snake should have, if he hadn't been a snake, right? If he hadn't been evil, he should have respected that. And if he's going to introduce uh, something, you know, some idea or, you know, suggestion or whatever, should have gone to Adam. I'm pointing these things out because I think they're, they are intentional. Uh, and it's, it's the way Satan works. And then next, um, Eve usurped the leadership role of Adam. So the serpent comes and he, he is subverting God's created order by going to the woman rather than the man. And the woman, Eve, goes along with that. She's fine with that. You know, rather than, rather than saying, hey... Speak with my husband or something of that sort. And by the way, in doing that, she's also rebelling against God. And we'll bring that out a little bit more in a moment. Um, And then thirdly, Adam stood by passively allowing the deception to happen. In uh, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. When, when you're reading these first few verses, um, verses 1 through 5, um, you could easily get the idea that Adam's nowhere around. You know, I mean, it's, it's like he was absent that day. He had gone to Walmart or something. And the serpent comes along and deceives the woman. But then we find out he's, he's there with her. Okay, he's there with her, and God has set him in a leadership role and has given him dominion over all of creation, which of course includes the serpent. So why doesn't he speak up and exercise his God-given dominion? 
Why does he allow the serpent to come in and deceive his wife, subverting his role as head and essentially destroy um, their harmony, their family life there? He is passively allowing this to happen. That is in itself sinful. Now, sometimes we, we think, well, you know, hey, I wasn't doing anything. <laughs> I just... I. I was just standing there watching. That's a problem. That's a problem. So um, this is how all of the the sin is playing out here. And something happened while this is going on. Something happened in the heart of man. And and this we need to understand. The, The rebellion against God took place in the heart. It's It's not... When Eve bit into the apple, uh, apple, the fruit, get, you, you hear that so much you get used to thinking that way. Uh, not an apple, but the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's not when that, you know, that act of biting into the fruit takes place that sin occurred. Something had to happen within Eve's heart to get her to that point. And, and it's pretty well spelled out there in verse 7. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit. So something was going on inside of her before she ever committed the actual act of disobedience. And that's always the case. In fact, in... in uh, James, chapter 1, verse 14, James says clearly, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I mean, you read that and you you think, James must have had Genesis 3, 6 ringing in his head when he's pinning this, thinking about the desire of Eve for the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So something took place in the heart of man. And I would say both of them, uh, male and female, Adam and Eve, Something took place in their heart. A corruption enters in. The disobedience, you know, actually eating the fruit, is the result of the corruption in the human heart. Jesus is emphatically clear on that in passages like uh, these are actually in Mark 15, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 15, 19, and Mark 7, 21 through 23. These are uh, different accounts of the same event, the same saying. But Jesus says... For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Or Mark says it this way. Uh, he quotes Jesus this way. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. 
So, so Jesus is saying, you know, the, the heart is like a fountain, right? And the heart of the wicked is spewing these things. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, etc., etc., etc. Those things don't have their beginning in the actual act. They have their beginning in the human heart. So there's something happened uh, in, in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6. Something happens there in the heart of man. And the result is that they disobey by their action. They actively disobey God and eat the, the uh, fruit that He had forbidden them to eat. Now, that corruption, that rebellion against God that starts in the human heart and that, that's where it has its seat, that's where it resides, that, that rebellion against God has consequences. And there's only one remedy. And that remedy is Jesus. Or you could say it another way, the, the only remedy is the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, right? His atoning work, His summed up in His life, suffering, death, resurrection. That's the remedy for our rebellion, our sin. And there is no other remedy. All right, so let's go, let's go to verse 7. I know Joel started reading in verse 8, and that's because that's what I want us to deal with this morning, verses 8 through 24. But uh, let's just pick up uh, for now, and, and to, to, to get our bearings here, let's pick up in verse 7. And uh, zero in a little bit more on this idea of man's rebellion against God, which I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say in essence is this. Dissatisfaction with God's design and rule. Man's rebellion against God, which is dissatisfaction with God's design and rule. In other words, there, something happened in the human heart where they decided that they were dissatisfied God had, had given them uh, blessings more than sufficient, more than, I mean, abundant in terms of uh, uh, what can you eat. Well, we can eat of every tree of the garden except for one. <laughs> I mean, God had abundantly blessed them, given them beyond measure uh, more than what they, they, they needed. God's provision is always sufficient. It's not always sufficient in our heads or our, our hearts, to say it another way. In other words, in our inner being, we don't always see God's provision as sufficient, but it always is. And so this, this rebellion against God flows out of this dissatisfaction. In fact, that's what it is. It's what the rebellion is. It's a dissatisfaction with God. I don't like what God's provided. And I don't like the way God set things up. So, so let's just, let's just uh, I know it hurts and all this and that, but let's just focus in on Eve for a minute. <laughs> and, let me, and let me say ahead of time, the rest of the Bible lays the blame on Adam. And there's a reason for that. And again, that goes back to what I was talking about a couple of weeks ago because God set Adam up as head. So Adam had the responsibility that day to protect 
Eve from the deception that she was faced with. And he shirked his responsibility. So, um, was Eve deceived? Yes. And it's easy to, to uh, lay the, you know, all of the blame on Eve and say, you know, just like Adam. I mean, just like Adam, we can look back and say, if it hadn't been for that woman, you know, in the picture, we'd all be in better shape. Uh, but we'd be wrong in saying that. Because there were two sinners that day. And I would say that the greater responsibility lies on the shoulders of Adam. And I think the rest of the Bible is clear on that. And that's why when you get to Romans, for example, Paul says, it's through one man that sin entered the world. And he's talking about Adam. Adam. And I know the the Hebrew word for Adam and for man is the same, but still, uh, I I think it's clear there that that he's, he's speaking about Adam, the male. And it's through him, Paul says, that sin came into the world. And then death came in through sin. All right, but let's, let's zero in on Eve for a moment. Why would she give in to this deception at all? Because she is stupid? No, I would, I would argue, uh, especially in uh, being perfectly um, created in the image of God and up to this point being without sin, she was not stupid. Neither one of them were stupid. But I would suggest this. I said a moment ago, there's something going on here in the human heart, in in Adam's heart and in Eve's heart, and it's a dissatisfaction. So she's been given a role that she doesn't like, evidently. And it's actually, it's kind of multi-layered here, and some of it applies to Adam as well. So she's, she's moved with desire, verse 6 tells us. That, that is clearly in, uh, an indication of idolatry. Loving or desiring, to use the word there, desiring something other than God. Or, to say it another way, because this, again, this is uh, the essence of idolatry, setting yourself up as God. You know, Satan is crafty, so... The serpent, so he comes to Eve and Adam and says, Look, God does not want you eating that fruit because He knows on the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. So what the serpent is tempting her with is, You can be equal with God. Now, in order to take that bait, you have to be dissatisfied with who you are. So Adam and Eve, you know, evidently became dissatisfied at this point with their role as, or with, you know, role is probably not a good word here, but with, with their, their, um, their being, their ontological um, being as creature. I mean, there's only one God, and God created all things. Everything else is under the category of creature. And at some point here, they became dissatisfied. You know, I don't, I don't want to be a creature. I want to be equal with God. The serpent says, if I eat the fruit, I can be equal with God. Now, th- this is astounding for one thing, because God, what did we see back in 127? God created man in his own image, right? So, 
God made man, male and female, in His own image. They bear the image of God. Or to say it another way, they are like God. But they are like God, meaning that God has imparted to them some of His attributes, what we call communicable attributes. So, for example, God is love. Well, human beings are capable of love, right? Because God has created us in His image. Or or we could just say it this way. We could take in a lot of different emotions by just saying that God um, has emotion. God gets angry. God um, loves. God grieves. You know, we're told in the New Testament you can actually grieve the Holy Spirit. Um, So, the, the fact that we are emotional beings is part of our being created in the image of God. Or the fact that we are moral beings. We understand, you know, things. some things are right, some things are wrong. We can do right, we can do wrong. My, uh, our pets, you know, our dog and our cats um, do some things sometimes that we call bad. You know, that's a bad thing to do. Uh, you know, they claw the couch and stuff like that, the, 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 the cats. Um, but, you know, really, it, that might not be a, a, an appropriate thing to do, but, it's, but if we're talking morality, it's not a bad thing because they're not capable of committing a moral act because they're not cr- created in the image of God. But we are, so we can do good and we can do bad. We're capable of doing things that we, that we well, things that really are, good or bad. So they're like God is my point. God made them that way. And that is awesome. I mean, we look at creatures, you know, you look at something like a dolphin and you think that is an amazing animal. But it's nothing like a human being. As bad as the evolutionists want us to think it is. Or the chimpanzee, you know. It doesn't even come close. So um, God has created them as... The psalmist says, fearfully and wonderfully, I mean, made in His image. They are like God, and here is Satan saying, through the serpent, you can be like God. And they, they, they should not have you know, taken that bait. I mean, they should have said, we are like God. But you see what he's tempting them with is not just bearing God's likeness, but he's tempting them with equality. That's the whole idea behind what he's saying. You can be equal with God. And that's why God doesn't want you eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because He knows that when you do, you'll be equal with Him. You'll be another God. And uh, you know what? The falsehood of that should have been obvious because all they had to do was ask themselves, how many, how many trees of good and knowledge have I created? How many, how many land masses have I created? How many, how many stars have I set out in space? How many trees of life have I created? How many gardens have I created? Zero, zero, zero. All the, and then they should have realized, well, you know what? I'm probably never going to be equal with God. <laughs> but what happens is corruption in their heart. Desire, evil desire. They, they took the bait because they wanted to be like God in an inappropriate way, in an impossible way. Some of God's attributes are 
not communicable. His omnipresence, the fact that He is infinite, or omni, uh, omnipotent, omnipresent, you know, He's everywhere all the time. So we, we can never be equal with God. We're not all powerful like God is, never will be. But that's what they were desiring. That's idolatry. And that's born out of a dissatisfaction for who they are, who God made them to be. And a dissatisfaction even for His design. I mean, let's, let's just come down. You know, that's kind of big picture. They, they wanted to be equal with God and, you know, they weren't satisfied with their role as creature. Let's, let's just come down to the household. And again, we'll start with Eve and work our way backwards. But Eve is created as a helper to Adam. And at this point, it's obvious she's dissatisfied with her role. The serpent comes, and he comes not to Adam, but to her. And she accepts that when she should not have. And then you look at Adam. You say, well, Adam was fine with his role. He wasn't causing a problem here. Uh, well, actually, no, because God has... has placed him there as head and given him dominion, as head, uh, head over Eve, and has dominion, as does Eve, by the way, over all of the rest of creation. Neither one of them exercised their dominion over the serpent at this point. They could have said something like Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Jesus exercised his when Satan offered to, to uh, you know, to give him dominion and have all the nations worshiping him. Jesus said, it's written, you shall worship the Lord God and him only. Satan was trying to get him, Jesus, to worship Satan. Nope, not going to do that. So there's dissatisfaction here with their roles. As In Adam's case, as head, he should have taken responsibility and shut this whole thing down. In Eve's case, as helper, she should have deferred to her husband. Uh, she did not. So, man's rebellion against God, dissatisfaction with God's design and rule. And what, of course, I, again, what I mean by rule there is that they're trying to be equal with God. They're not, they're not satisfied now to be in submission to Him, to be subordinate to Him. And then... Secondly, we get to the results. And I'm talking first about immediate results. And I've already mentioned this, so I'm going to try to fly through this part pretty quick. But in the immediate results of man's rebellion, guilt, which brings shame and fear. So we already looked at the shame. You see, that, you know, they, they, were, um, they were trying to uh, clothe themselves. Look in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then there's the fear. When, when God comes, verse, verse 8, they, uh, they heard the sound of the Lord, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Now think about that. They hear the Lord coming, and this, this would have been the source, before this, this would have been the source of great joy, right? To be in God's presence. Amen. But they hear... The Lord coming, what do they do? They hide. The man and his wife hid themselves. They've already covered themselves with loincloths. 
to, uh, to cover themselves from each other and from God and whoever else, I guess, the serpent and whoever else, out of shame. And now they hear God coming. They hear the sound of His voice. And they hide from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Great indicator of the corruption in the heart. To hide from God, to run from God. To, instead of taking joy in His presence, to flee from His presence. It's interesting when you're reading through the book of Jonah, how many times it it uses that phrase, the presence of the Lord. You know, Jonah ran from the presence of the Lord. Think about the futility of that. Uh, And if if you, you know... Just read the book of Jonah. You'll see uh, an example of the futility of it. Same thing here. The futility of hiding from God. Psalm 139 that we read earlier, David says, you know, if I go into the grave, into Sheol, or into, there you are, or into thick darkness, there you are, because it's like light to you. In other words, nothing is hidden from God. So there's shame and there's fear. Shame even among themselves, and then fear of God. And, and these, this result of sins, the consequences of sin. And these consequences, or th- these results were immediate. The, I mean, they knew they were naked, and they covered themselves, um, made an attempt to cover themselves. Verse 7, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They were ashamed. The harmony that existed before. You go back to 2.25. They were naked and not ashamed. The harmony is destroyed now. The harmony between man and woman. The harmony between um, man and woman, or man rather, and creation. And there I mean male and female and all the rest of creation. That harmony is destroyed. The the harmony between man and God is now destroyed. So um, this is not a holy fear. This is a ungodly fear of God, unholy fear of God. And they attempted to deal with their guilt themselves. We still do that, don't we, apart from Christ? You think back um, before you were saved or you think about people who don't yet know the Lord. What do they do? What do you, what do, you do with your guilt? We, we've got ways, right? Right? I mean, some people just deny it. (laughs) Some people turn to false religion. Justify. You know, you just justify what you do. Well, they made made fig leaves. I mean, there's there's an example there. They should have been running to God in repentance. Help! (laughs) And instead, they're trying to cover their own tracks. And it's a vain effort. Still goes on today. Man seeks to heal the horizontal relationships, and we hear all kinds of ideas about how to do that, don't we? Everybody just needs to be more educated, you know. We can just get everybody to college. Jimi Hendrix, he thought it could be accomplished through music. You know, we can bring about world peace. We can just get this music out there. Vain effort. Vain effort to cover their own sin. Vain effort to hide from God. And then comes God's piercing question in verse 9. He's calling out, Where are you? Where are you? That's a great 
question, isn't it? And he's not asking that for the sake of information because he couldn't find them. I think he's asking that for their sake. Kind of a wake-up call. A call to realization. Like Isaiah 1, you know, where the Lord says, Come, come, let us, come, let us reason together. Consider your ways. It's like saying, where are you? We, we, we do that to our kids sometimes. What are you doing? What are you doing? God did that to Elijah. You know, Elijah had the, had the, uh, the climax probably of his life there on, the, on Mount Carmel and uh, called fire down from heaven, killed all the prophets of Baal, and then, then word gets back to Jezebel, and Jezebel says, I'll take care of him. And Elijah runs for his life into the wilderness. The great prophet Elijah. God comes to him in the wilderness and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Twice. I mean, Elijah says, well, all of Israel's forsaken you and I'm the only one left. And God says, what, what are you doing here? That's the kind of question it is. What, what are you, where are you? What are you doing? What have you done? What are you, what are you doing here? What are you doing with those fig leaves? He's not asking for information. I, he's, he's calling them to account. And then comes the blame game. First, God asks the question, where are you? And then Adam says, well, you know, Verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this? Now, notice these replies, by the way. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, and he goes on to curse the serpent. Now I want to come back to that in a moment. We're, we're, going, to, we're going to close here. We're going to come back and pick, pick this up um, next week, Lord willing. But let me say this as we, as we close. When God calls them to an account, there's, there's a shifting of blame that goes on here. And this is still so easy to do. You know, the, the buck stops there, Lord. It's first with Adam. It's, it's that woman you, you gave me, Lord. What, I mean, wasn't he? Didn't he have authority? Wasn't he head over the woman? Why didn't he protect her? Why didn't he shut that down? But instead of owning up to that and saying, Lord, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. He, he says, it's, it's her, Lord. And you know what's even worse about that? And this is true not only of Adam, but of Eve as well. What, 
What, what, they're really, what they're really doing there is throwing the blame on God. It's, it's that woman, you gave me. That's what he's really doing. I, I was doing pretty good until you gave me that woman. And that kind of threw a monkey wrench in things. God, and you, you shouldn't have done that. Because now look where we are. And Eve does the same thing. The Lord says to the woman, What have you done? And then Eve says, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, she's not taking responsibility either. Well, the serpent tempted me. He told me I could be equal with you, and I went for it. No, she's not doing that. The serpent deceived me. It's the serpent's fault. God, if you, if you hadn't created the serpent, if you hadn't put the serpent in the garden with us, we were doing good. It's that serpent, that serpent, that thing that you made, that thing that you put in my life is causing me to sin. It's the environment that you've created and placed me in, God. It's the Father you gave me. And if you'd given me a better father, I wouldn't have grown up to be such a jerk. If you'd, if you'd just arranged it to where our family could have had more money, you know, we'd lived in a better neighborhood and we'd had better influences, and I wouldn't be an addict today. So I don't know, God. I don't know why you didn't do better, God. I don't know why you put the serpent here. Or Adam could be saying, I don't know, I don't know why you gave me that woman, Lord. You said I needed a helper. I was doing pretty good. Why'd you do that? They're, they're throwing the blame back on God. Everybody's guilty except me. And it even ultimately goes to God. I knew an elder lady one time, and uh, a lot of folks called her a prophetess. And I, I won't even go down that road today, have that discussion, but, but it's just true. I'm mentioning that, 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 uh, that she was known in some circles that way. Um, and, you know, she was devoted her life to the Lord. I was good friends with her, her uh, grandson, who was a drug addict. And uh, he lived with her a lot, and, of course, she... You know, telling about the Lord, and I would witness to him when I got opportunities. And I saw him at a convenience store one day, and uh, was asking him about how he was doing. It was obvious how he was doing. He was not doing good, staying high and drunk and stuff. But anyway, he said, "God is lying to my grandma." Because his grandmother would come to him and say, "I know what you're doing. You know, you need to, you know, you need, you need to cut it out." Blah blah blah. And he said, "God is lying to my grandma." I just thought that was interesting. He didn't even he didn't even say, "My grandma thinks I'm a junkie and a alcoholic, and she's wrong." You know, he didn't even say. He said, "God is lying to my grandma." And that's pretty much what they were doing. God, it's your fault. Lord willing, we'll have to pick up the rest of it later. But let me just say this for now. Um, 
Those are the immediate consequences, the shame and the guilt and the fear of God, unholy fear of God. And then there are going to be long-term consequences when God brings judgment. But there's also hope in that God, here we have the first promise of a deliverer before we get to the end of this chapter. One who comes and crushes the head of the serpent reversing the effect of the fall. So the long-term consequence here is that man is cast out of the garden. He's alienated from God. The relationship with God is broken. And man is essentially condemned to eternal hell. But there's one coming who reverses the effects of the fall. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. And in Him... We have reconciliation. So for all those who know Christ, who come to Jesus in faith, or who come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, are reconciled to God. And it's not that all of history is undone, no. But the effect is undone. So that, Paul can say in Romans 8.1, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now, therefore, no condemnation. And you know what? God does get the credit for that. (laughs) He doesn't deserve the credit for the sin, but He does get the credit for salvation. Would you stand, please? Let's pray. Father, Lord, um, we're so thankful for Your Word and for Your grace. Grace that we will, we will even see as we continue in this chapter. Um, grace that manifests in the midst of judgment. This account that we read today um, could have been the end. You could have wiped Adam and Eve off the face of the earth at this point and been done with human beings. But because of your mercy, because of your love for us, because of your grace, you gave a promise, a promise of restoration, reconciliation to you. And you have fulfilled that promise in sending your own Son to suffer and die for all who put their trust in Him so that we may not perish, but have eternal life. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, Amen.